The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go Beyond Reality. Good evening, good morning, and welcome. It's Beyond Reality Radio. I'm your host, J.V. Johnson. Thanks so much for being here with me tonight. Great show lined up for you. We're going to be talking about shapeshifters. That can be anything from werewolves to a Dracula-type creature, a vampire, um, to skinwalkers. There's a whole lot of things that uh, this particular topic will cover, and it'll cover a a very long and large time frame as well, as shapeshifters have been talked about in cultures since really the beginning of uh, recorded history. So we've got a lot to chat about. Our guest will be John Kachuba, and John is an author, a paranormal investigator. He's written about 12 books on different paranormal topics, and his latest is called shapeshifters a history we'll bring john in after the guest uh looking ahead we've got some great stuff coming up for you uh let's see tomorrow night and friday will be best of programs we're going to bring out some great interviews from uh the last couple years of the show for you to enjoy and then uh that'll be the case on monday night as well i'll be in uh, gettysburg pennsylvania over the weekend at an event. And then Tuesday, a very interesting conversation. Uh, July 16th marks the 20th anniversary of the mysterious death of JFK Jr. Remember, he he was piloting a small aircraft and something terrible happened and he crashed into the ocean with his wife and I believe it was his sister-in-law. Well, John Kerner will join us. He is a professor of social sciences He's an author and a historian. He'll be talking about the different theories that surround his death. Of course, there are conspiracy theories that um, follow this particular incident, uh, not just because he was a Kennedy, but uh, that probably does lead the list. So that'll be a great discussion Tuesday night. And then Wednesday, uh, a guest that we've been trying to get for a while now, we finally nailed this down. Uh, Del Bigtree will be here to talk about... um, the uh, the controversy surrounding vaccines and uh, the pharmaceutical companies. He is an investigative journalist, and he's the CEO of a group called Informed Consent Action Network. Next Wednesday, he'll be with us, and he'll tell us all about it. Um, by the way, tomorrow night's program, I think, I'm, I'm not sure if I mentioned this, uh, we, we're still working on uh, sorting out uh, the guests, but we will be here live tomorrow night, just so you're aware. Uh, the phone number for call-in later in the show, uh, 607-282-4497 is the number. If you need a toll-free number, it's 844-687-7669. And of course, as always, I invite you to stop by our social media sites on Facebook. It's Beyond Reality Radio. And also go to JVJ Paranormal. That's my uh, professional page. And then uh, swing over to YouTube and search for JV Johnson. Subscribe to that uh, channel and you will get uh, access to a number of, probably like 300 now, back episodes of Beyond Reality Radio Plus. You'll be able to see us live stream. It's a great option if you don't have a local radio station carrying the program. Um, in addition to that, there's some bonus material there as well. So again, tonight it's going to be Shapeshifters is the conversation with John Kachuba. We'll go to break. We'll bring him in in just a moment. It's Beyond Reality Radio. Did you know that online retailers like Amazon have constant deals that can save you money on the things you buy every day? It's no joke. Save 40%, 50%, even 80% on great products. And all you have to do is know about them. Noodle Shark is the way to be alerted when something good is coming your way. Noodle Shark is the social media page that lists great deals that not 
only save you money, but give you the deals before anyone else has them. All you have to do is find Noodle Shark on Facebook. Search it as The Noodle Shark. That's The Noodle Shark, because you deserve to save too. Become a shark and save. As I said, we're going to be talking about shapeshifters tonight. Our guest, John Kachuba, is the award-winning author of 12 books and numerous articles, short stories, and poems. John holds advanced degrees in creative writing, and he teaches that subject through Ohio University and the Gotham Writers Workshop. He's a member of the Historical Novel Society and the Horror Writers Association. John frequently speaks on parano- on the paranormal topics and metaphysical topics and is a regular speaker at universities and libraries, paranormal conferences, on podcasts, television, and like he's doing tonight, on radio programs. John, welcome to be on Reality Radio. It's an honor to have you here. Oh, thank you, JV. I'm glad to be here. So let's uh, let's get to know you a little bit here. Um, sure. You've written about a lot of different topics, ghosts, obviously shapeshifters. We're going to be talking about that tonight. Uh, when did you take an interest in the paranormal? You know, actually, I, I sort of grew up with that interest. I, I grew up back in New England, in Connecticut, and I was always interested in not only the history of that location and the people, but the the sort of the folklore and the tales, and I was surrounded by ghost stories and not only that, but old cemeteries, you know. So I, I spent a lot of time creeping through them. Um, I got a chance to meet Ed and Lorraine Warren, who I'm sure your audience recognizes. Of course, yeah. Uh, so the premier ghost hunters of America um, lived in the same town as they did for a while and got to know them a little bit. Um, so I was always, I always had that interest, um, but I didn't really start writing about the paranormal until. Uh, my first book, which was in 2004, and that was about ghost hunting in Ohio, where I live now. Uh, but the interest has always been there. And when I look back at even some of my fiction that I've written over the years, even if it's not actually a paranormal novel or short story, there's always some paranormal or metaphysical element in there. It just pops up. You know, a ghost will be in there somewhere <laughs> or something weird, something uncanny. Um, it's just been in my nature, and I guess only now am I realizing that, you know, I've been thinking about this for a long time. Why not write about it? So, so that's what I've been doing recently. It's very, very difficult to grow up in New England and not find yourself surrounded by uh, ghost stories and legends and folklore and all these things that seem to fuel many of these paranormal passions we have. Right, absolutely. And I have to say, you know, I, I mean, I grew up in New England, lived in Rhode Island for a while, lived in uh, Connecticut, you know, obviously. But, you know, here I am in the Midwest, and I've been here now for probably close to 25 years. And I've traveled all across the country, in fact, all around the world. And what I found out is that um, New England is, is sort of a, a nice area for that. There's a lot of stuff going on. But you know what? It's happening everywhere around the world. You can find those same stories. You can find the same kind of lore. You can find the same kind of true experiences that people have. So it's, uh, you know, it's universal, um, the idea of the paranormal and metaphysical and what's out there. Uh, definitely universal. Maybe universal across the United States. Is it universal internationally? Do other cultures uh, have the same fascination or at least awareness that we do? Yeah, I think they do. And it depends. You know, I found different areas of the world have, have a stronger interest. For instance, uh, I've, I've traveled a lot through Asia from uh, Singapore, Thailand, Cambodia, uh, Indonesia, um, Sri Lanka, India. I've been in all these countries. And it seems to me that that area particularly has a very, very strong interest, uh, particularly in, in spirits and ghosts. Uh, you know, it's, it's in their culture. And 
they they have the feeling that the spirits are with them all around all the time. Uh, it, it's not unusual to say, "Oh, I believe in ghosts," or "I saw a ghost." People would say, "Sure, I had that same experience myself," or "Yes, I have too seen a ghost." So I think it's I think different areas are are more um, more attuned to sort of the paranormal metaphysical realm, um, and I certainly have seen it a lot in in Asia. Um, so yeah, it, is there. It, yeah, is there is there a bit of a reverence for the spirit world in Asian cultures, particularly in Japan? Well, there is. There's a lot of countries in Asia that celebrate something equivalent to some some call it a hungry ghost festival. Um, others have different names for it, but it has a lot to do with ancestor worship, um, or at least reverence, if not actual worship, uh, at least reverence for ancestors and for recognizing them as being in a spirit world now and yet still connected to us here on the earthly plane. So there is that. There's that reference. There's that connection. Uh, and, yeah, definitely Japan and several other countries in Asia, it's very strong. Um, it's something, you know, we have it here a little bit. Uh, I think of uh, the Day of the Dead, for instance, among Hispanic cultures here in America, yeah. in Central America. Uh, there's, there's that same element there of connection and reverence to ancestors that have gone beyond um, and, and sort of maintain that connection, maintaining that reverence. So it's, it's in other cultures as well, but it was very strong in, uh, in Asia. Now, I know tonight we're going to end up talking about shapeshifters, I promise, but I'm curious about <laughs> some of this ghost work that you've done as well. You've written a lot about ghosts. Um, has most of your work been as an academic studying ghostly phenomena, or you, you roll your sleeves up and get right in there and invest, investigate? No, I've I've been out there. Um, I, I think at this point I've probably investigated probably close to, if not over, a hundred locations in the U.S. and I've done some abroad too. And, and what I did for a lot of my books, well, I should back up. Any of my books about ghosts, uh, any of them that have anything to do with an actual location, uh, I my my sort of uh, way of working is that I have to be at that location myself. So I have to go there. I have to spend time as much as much as I can there do whatever investigating I can. And what I've done for those books is I would often team up with um, various ghost groups across the country who have all the equipment and, you know, are, are fully versed in doing full investigations. And I'd go along with them, uh, frequently invited by them. A lot of them were TAPS groups, but, you know, they weren't necessarily. But uh, these folks would say, hey, we're doing an investigation, and we know you're out there and you're interested and you want to tag along with us, and, and I would. Um, so there were investigations always. Um, I would never write about a place that I did not have, you know, firsthand experience um, at. And, and sometimes I would go alone too. It wasn't always with groups. Uh, in fact, sometimes I prefer to to work alone because I think sometimes when you're with a whole group and you have all this equipment and you're setting things up and you're getting so busy doing that, I think sometimes you sort of lose track of, or I should say, lose sight of what you're actually doing or what you should be doing. And things are happening around you, but you're so you're so busy with the equipment and with the other members of the team that you don't pay attention to what's maybe actually going on in the environment. So sometimes I like to work on my own too. You know, it's it's funny you say that because um, you know, frequently having been involved with the television show Ghost Hunters, and clearly Jason, who is my co-host, not here tonight right. though, but uh, you know, obviously founded Taps and uh, started the show Ghost Hunters. We're often asked, you know, what's the best piece piece of equipment? What's the best way to uh, investigate? And I think people often forget that the best equipment you can use are your eyes and your ears. 
And, um, and you know, it's good to have that other stuff to substantiate things. But really, your eyes and your ears are probably the most valuable tools, and we often forget that. We're too busy staring at a meter or something. Exactly. You know, I'm glad you said that because frequently when I talk about ghost hunting, I always say to people just what you said, but I said, you know, pay attention to what your body is telling you, what your senses are telling you. You know, it's not unusual to go into a location that might be haunted and maybe have an actual visceral response. You know, you feel lightheaded or you feel dizzy or you feel sick to your stomach. Um, you know, I've had some of those things uh, occur. But, yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, our senses are there first. That's what they're for. And the equipment is good to verify what you may already be um, sort of receiving through your senses. But don't rely on that entirely, you know. That's... Primitive man didn't do that, right? I mean, they didn't yeah. have the equipment, yet they were in touch with the spirit world. Yeah, um, you know, you've investigated uh, probably around 100 different places, and we all know there's many different types of hauntings, whether it's a poltergeist haunting, sometimes demonic activity uh, can be present in, a lo- present in a location, although not nearly as often as people seem to claim, in my opinion. Um, but there's a lot of stuff going on. Anything in particular fascinate you more than anything else? Um. No, I, I don't think so. I, I think, well, I think for me what I'm interested in is, again, history. And so I'm really interested in locations that have a very strong historical background to them. Um, so I, I rarely investigate, you know, Aunt Millie's barn, you know. I'm more interested in investigating the site of a, of a battle or a massacre or something historical. Uh, because I, I, think, I think what happens there is you have... If if the, psych, if the idea of psychic impressions in the environment holds, I think you get those stronger in places that have some historical context where something really happens, something major. So I'm more interested in investigating those kinds of locations. Not not that I haven't done you know coffee shops and and libraries and restaurants as well, but um, places that have a very strong historical bent to them are of more interest to me. I find that to be true as well. Um, I'm headed to Gettysburg, Pennsylvania this weekend. Oh, yeah. ever, ever been there for any uh, ghost work? You know, funny thing is I've been to Gettysburg twice, but it was long before I was doing any ghost work. So I haven't been back, but I'd like to go and maybe team up with uh, Mark Nesbitt over there or something and uh, see how things are going. It's such a great place, and you mentioned battlefields. And talk about a place where, obviously, a, a very uh, in, um, important place in American history, but also a place that just saw so much tragedy and emotional energy spilled onto the fields in the form of blood. Um, you can't help but think there's a major paranormal fuel source there, uh, being that, that tragedy and that emotional energy. Right. Earlier this year, I was in uh, I was in Cambodia as part of my um, part of my tour of doing some Asian countries, and I had the occasion to go out to the killing fields uh, under Pol Pot when the Khmer Rouge was oh, yeah. in Cambodia, and that was an incredible experience. I mean, it's uh, you know it was during broad daylight; you can't go there in the evening or anything, obviously. Uh, but even just walking around in the daytime, when you when you consider the thousands of people that were brutally murdered there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, everything is, is still the way it was. And there's a, a huge, huge sort of glass tower that stands probably, I'll say maybe like five, four or five stories high. And you can walk into this thing. It's a square, it's a rectangular-shaped tower, totally glass, and you can walk into it. But it is completely filled from top to bottom with bones of the victims. Oh, wow. So you can see it from the outside, and you can walk in. You can sort of walk around, sort of the periphery of it inside. Once you're in there, 
and you're looking at stacks and stacks and stacks of skulls and femurs and everything like that. And that you just look at that, and you, you just you know you know that that place is is full of spirits. I mean, that's a horrible, horrible place. And, yeah. uh, there's plenty of places in the world like that. That's not the only place. Unfortunately, we continue to create places like that. His books include the one we'll be talking about tonight, specifically Shapeshifters, A History, but he's got many, many others as well. And in fact, John, you've got about a dozen books. What's the split between fiction and nonfiction in your work? Actually, it's primarily nonfiction. I have... Um, Two novels, Savage Apostle and Dark Entry. Dark Entry is a paranormal novel, and I have a short story collection. Um, my agent right now is, is working primarily with my novels, with new novels, so I'm moving in that direction. But, yeah, right now it's probably, you know, it's mostly nonfiction that I've been writing. So your newest book called Shapeshifters, A History, at what point, um, having, having been somebody who had an interest in the paranormal since you, your youth, uh, when did Shapeshifters come under the radar for you? I think it started actually as I was doing my my research and my promotion and everything with um, with ghost work because invariably I'd be on a program like yours and you know somebody would call in and instead of talking about a ghost they would say something like well you know I had this experience and they would talk about something that sounded like a werewolf or something like a vampire uh, primarily werewolves it seemed especially if people were talking about cryptids and Sasquatch and all that kind of stuff. Next thing you know, they'd be mentioning the werewolf. And so I started thinking about that and just, you know, reading a little bit more on it and just understanding how widespread the idea of a shapeshifter, whether we think of the stereotypical werewolf or vampire or, you know, creatures like that, how, um, how widespread that character, the idea of a shapeshifter was, not just in America, but in cultures all around the world. Um, and then, it just got my interest, and I started digging and digging and started going down all these rabbit holes. <laughs> and the next thing you know, I find out that, well, I've got, I've got a lot of material here. So uh, it really just uh, took off on its own once I started getting some hints pretty much from people who were calling into you know, radio programs and talking with me about other things than ghosts. Was it what you thought it was going to be when you started looking into it? Well, yes and no. I mean, a lot of what I found was sort of what I already knew about shapeshifters, especially if you look at some of the ancient, ancient ideas of shapeshifters in, like, Greek mythology and Egyptian um, religion and things like this, where uh, you had the gods coming down and changing into all types of, you know, other people or creatures or whatever to, to work their will um, on humanity. So I, I kind of knew about that. But I was um, definitely surprised to find out how much of the shapeshifter uh, belief is is still prevalent in so many areas, and how many people are still saying that they're having experiences with shapeshifters? And then even more, I learned more about psychology and how there's what I call internal shapeshifters, who are people who do not show any external change of any kind, but you know that inside something has happened to them. They are no longer a human being, there is something else. And there's a lot of psychology behind that, a lot of psychology, a lot of psychiatry, and you know, we might get into that a little later. But, yeah, so this, this thing really took off, and it became a very, um, a very broad search, and it was difficult for me to sort of wrangle all this material together and, and put it into a book that, that makes sense. And I'm looking at the book and thinking, you know, it's great, I love it, I think it's a great book, uh, personally. <laughs> but... <laughs> I'm 
thinking I probably could have written another three books like this. Um, <laughs> there's so much more material out there yet. You know, we probably were remiss in not uh, setting out to uh, define this a little bit better when we started talking about it. You know, we, I think everybody knows what a werewolf is, and a werewolf is an example of a shapeshifter. But let's back that definition a little broader. What is a shapeshifter? Right. So the simple definition is uh, of a shapeshifter is that it's a person who is capable of transforming themselves, actually physically transforming themselves into another person, into an animal, uh, even into an inanimate object. Um, and, and there's a lot of, we can parse this down a little bit more, that there are voluntary shapeshifters and involuntary shapeshifters. And when you think of uh, voluntary shapeshifters, I'm thinking about somebody like the Greek god Zeus, who, if you read some of the Greek mythology, probably changed himself into, I have a, I have a list in my book, and I think I stopped at around 10 different animals <laughs> that he shifted into, um, literally to have his way with women, which is, you know, an interesting reason to shapeshift, but that was, that was his thing. What could I say? Were women more attracted to goats than they were men? Is that what, it was? <laughs> is that what he was you know, thinking? I, 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 yeah, I can never understand that. The famous story of Lita <laughs> and the swan. He was the swan. I'm thinking, why would you? Well, you know, I don't want to get into that. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> anyway, so, so that's a voluntary shapeshifter, somebody who has the power to do that. And we think, you know, going out of mythology, we think of some shamans and witches throughout centuries that have been credited with having that ability. Then there's involuntary shapeshifters. And we look at some of the fairy tales, like, uh, Brothers Grimm or uh, Hans Christian Andersen, where they talk about you know princes being turned into frogs and that kind of thing, and and those are usually the result of a curse or running afoul of some person with power or whatever. So they're involuntary. So we have those. Then I mentioned there a little bit earlier an internal shapeshifter. So you can classify them even more and say there's external and internal. And when I talk about external, that's your werewolf, that's your vampire, that's something that you see actually this, make this physical transformation where it you know, definitely changes in every aspect to become something else. But the internal shapeshifter is somebody, usually somebody who has some psychological issues going on there, who takes on the persona of maybe a wolf or a vampire or something like that, but for all practical appearances, all you, know, you look at him and he looks completely normal, but inside he believes he's a werewolf and acts out that way. So that's kind of a long story about what a shapeshifter is, but I think what I wanted to show is that it, it runs, it's a broad spectrum in terms of what shapeshifters are or can be. Um, and there's some that you know, change back and forth, literally shift. There's some that make a permanent shift from human to something else and stay that way. And there's some that are sort of caught halfway in between. You can see those three different types if you go back to Egyptian, um, Egyptian culture, ancient Egyptian culture. And you look at some of the religious statues and some of the gods, like Towerit and, and uh, Osiris and some of these other people who have these, uh, you know, a cat head on a human body right. or something like that. And that's sort of the kind of halfway between human and animal form in which they appear. So it's it's... It's fascinating, and it's just a very broad, broad, um, broad spectrum of of types involved here. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned uh, Greek mythology. You mentioned Egyptian culture, ancient Egyptian culture. How far back does this idea appear in history? Well, it goes back to prehistory, actually. I mean, some of the earliest indications of shapeshifters that we have are cave paintings, 
There's one particular in a cave in, um, in France. The cave is called uh, Trois Frères, Three Brothers. And it's a, it's a, it's a, a drawing of a creature that is um, four-legged but standing up on two. So he's standing upright, has antlers, has paws that actually sort of have fingers too. So they're sort of halfway between paws and fingers. And it's deer. It looks like a deer standing up on its hind legs, but the face is definitely the face of a human. And this, you know, this drawing is, is thousands and thousands of years old. It's, on a, it's a cave drawing, cave painting. And there's other indications like that in different parts of the world. There's other cave paintings that show that kind of thing in Spain and some other areas. Um, there's been some little carvings that were found in England uh, little bone carvings that show the same thing, show features, uh, show some kind of a creature that's half animal and, and half man. And I think this goes way back to ancient shamanic rituals, especially for hunters. You know, if you could put yourself in the place of a deer, if you can imagine yourself to be a deer and think like a deer and act like a deer, you probably have a better chance of getting into a herd of deer and bringing one down for dinner. So there were rituals involved, and you know the shaman would do some of the paintings, which would be part of the ritual, be like a visual image. Um, there may have even been some ingestion of natural hallucinogenics from the environment that uh, the hunters could have taken to make themselves feel like they are a deer, act like a deer, and have the same abilities as a deer so they can go get a deer. We all know that um, Hollywood grabs ideas and uh, basically burns them into the uh, psyche, at least in our culture in America. Um, what has Hollywood done with the idea of shapeshifters? Wow, that's, that's rampant. I mean, if you look at shapeshifters just in popular culture generally, uh, you know, there's books, there's movies. Uh, you go back to the old, uh, well, even before Bela Lugosi, you can go back to Nosferatu in, in Germany. Uh, that was 19, I'm trying to think of the exact year, probably like 1920-something. Yeah, great film, by the way. Yeah, oh, yeah, it's, it's a terrific One of my film. favorites, yeah. Yeah, I love it. And it's, it's one of the very first, you know, um, cinematic depiction of a shapeshifter, a vampire. Uh, although, you know, you don't really see so much of the shapeshifting, but that's what vampires are. But then you have Bela Lugosi over the years. Uh, you have Boris Karloff doing... Uh, uh, his thing, uh, Von Chaney as the werewolf. These are all old, old film people. And today, you know, there's Twilight and there's True Blood and there's uh, almost every TV show, Doctor Who, uh, Star Trek, uh, The Incredible Hulk. You know, it's still out there. Um, so it's not just, Holly, not just Hollywood in terms of movies, but it's on TV. It's in movies. It's in books, um, graphic novels. It's every place. Toys. What are Transformers? They're shapeshifters. <laughs> they're not human shapeshifters, but they're cars that turn into, you know, robotic creatures. So those are shapeshifters. I have 11 grandkids, and two are very small. And they're the ones that clued me into two cartoons, one called Vampirina, which is about a little vampire girl who can shapeshift into anything, and one called Morphal, which is some little red blob, a cute little red blob. I don't know what it's supposed to be, but... Morphle can turn into absolutely anything, a dinosaur, a loaf of bread, <laughs> doesn't matter. So we see these, but we don't sit and say, oh, that's a shapeshifter. We're so used to the character in so many ways 
that we don't even necessarily recognize it as a shapeshifter. We just say, oh, that's, that's a cute little red blob that turns into a dinosaur. Yeah, it's a shapeshifter. So it's in our culture. It's, it's very deeply embedded in our culture. And sometimes we don't even recognize it as such. John, we've got a pretty short segment here, just a few minutes, but I wanted to go back to this idea of voluntary shapeshifter versus involuntary. Are examples of that, uh, again, these come from pop culture, but like a, a werewolf, for example, that is, uh, doesn't have um, a choice when a full moon hits, he turns into a werewolf, or versus uh, Bella Lugosi's portrayal of Dracula, anyway, where he could turn into a bat at will. Are those examples of voluntary and involuntary? Yeah, exactly. Uh, the typical werewolf, the stereotypical stories are that it's something, I don't want to say it's a curse, but that something happens that changes you into a werewolf, whether it's a full moon or at some point uh, after generations it becomes actually in your blood in a way and you don't have a choice. You don't need a full moon. You are a werewolf. Uh, and it's, it's something that you can't control, whereas the stereotypical vampire, uh, Dracula is a great example, you know, um, they have that ability. They can say, well, I'm going to shift now. And, you know, typically change into a bat, right? That's what we see for the most part. Right. But that's, um, that's typical. That's, uh, that's a voluntary thing. And I think where you see that, you see it a lot in, in indigenous cultures when you hear stories about uh, people shifting. Because, again, usually it's a shaman or a witch or you know, somebody with, sort of has some occult, occult powers that they believe. And this person will will shift, and that's totally a voluntary uh, decision on his part. He's in control of that. He can control the transformation at will. Uh, so there's there's a big difference in those type. You know, you don't want to be the involuntary shapeshifter because <laughs> usually, like I said, you're <laughs> under a curse or it's something that you just can't control and you struggle with. Whereas a voluntary shapeshifter willingly takes on that transformation. We often associate. Uh any of this activity with something evil. Is that uh, the rule or the exception, or is it something fabricated by Hollywood? It's, it's, um, I wouldn't say it's fabricated by Hollywood. I would say that Hollywood certainly dwells on that aspect of it. Uh, but there are indications in, uh, well, I shouldn't say indications, there are certainly stories and cultures in which shapeshifters are not necessarily evil at all. Uh, there's cultures, especially in Europe, uh, I found this in Italy and some other countries where they were talking about mythological creatures such as fairies um, who could shapeshift. And frequently they did that for, for good reasons, for good intentions. Um, they were trying to enact something to basically help somebody or, or bring about some kind of good change in their environment or society. So it's not all evil. Um, but I have to say, although I say it's not all evil, it does seem like the the majority of it seems to uh, seem to have sort of evil connotations to it, if not have actual evil intentions. You also mentioned during uh, the earlier discussion that uh, shape shifting can involve inanimate objects. Are there examples of that that we can refer to? Well, there's examples. Um, there's examples in Hollywood, for instance, uh, Star Trek, the character Odo. Uh, I, I was on a program not too long ago, and I got all kinds of emails from people saying, you didn't mention Odo. So now for those people, if they're listening to your program, I'm mentioning Odo, who is an example of a shapeshift that I can turn into anything. He, he's turned into a liquid and went under like a door at one point. You know, um, So we get those stories. There's actually some biblical stories when you think of something 
it's hard to call it a shapeshifter because it's sort of a curse in a sense, but the story of uh, Lot's wife uh, from the Bible, the Old Testament. Yeah. Um, you know, Lot and his wife are told to flee Sodom and Gomorrah because God's going to destroy those cities. So they say, okay, leave and don't look behind you. You know, just leave that city. So, of course, we know this story. Lot's wife turns around and yeah. looks and she's converted into a pillar of salt. Right. And there is a pillar of salt today out in the Middle East that people say, you know, it's a, it's a stone, it's a stone pillar, and they call it Lot's wife, and they say that's Lot's wife. That's a, that's a one-way transformation, and it's not a good one. But it is shape-shifting still, and again, involuntary in that term. We've got uh, just about a minute here before we have to go to break. Uh, we're going to come back on the other side and continue the conversation. But in the meantime, where can people get a hold of the books? Well, the probably easiest way is you mentioned my website. Uh, you can get it directly from my website by going to book my book list, and you'll see it there, and it'll take you to the publisher, which is the University of Chicago Press. Uh, actually, they're a distributor. The book is published in the U.K., but it's in bookstores. It's in Amazon. I mean, you can get it anywhere. But also, something uh, as giveaways, my publisher, uh, for your listeners, is offering a 20% discount on the book tonight. Um, all they have to do is, when they go to order through University of Chicago, and you can access that through my website, if they put in the code SHAPE20, S-H-A-P-E-2-0, they'll get a 20% discount. So uh, they, I asked them if they could do that, and they said, yeah, we'll do that. So it'll bring the price down a little bit for her. Well, that's, very, that's very generous. Thank you. Again, the code for that is SHAPE20, and they can access that, access that right through your website. That's correct, yeah. All right, great. Um, tonight we're talking about shape shifters with our guest, John Kachuba. We'll bring him back into the program in just a moment. Looking ahead, uh, tomorrow night we're working on a guest schedule change, and that'll be announced shortly. Thursday night's program will be a best of, um, as I'm headed to Gettysburg, actually. Looking forward to a great paranormal weekend in Gettysburg, one of the uh, one of the best places to go if you're a paranormal enthusiast. Uh, Friday's always a best of. Monday will also be a best of because I will be coming back from Gettysburg. And then Tuesday, a very interesting discussion because July 16th marks the 20th anniversary of the mysterious death of JFK Jr. Remember that? He was piloting a plane to Martha's Vineyard with his wife, and I believe it was his sister-in-law. And uh, the plane, um, something uh, happened to it, uh, whether it was pilot error or it was something uh, more nefarious than that, we're not sure. But that's what the conversation will be about. And the plane crashed into the ocean and the three of them lost their lives tragically. Uh, but John Kerner will be joining the program Tuesday night to talk about the different theories about the death of JFK Jr. And then on Wednesday night, another highly anticipated conversation. It's um, Del Bigtree will be with us. We've been trying to get him on for a few weeks now. He's an investigative journalist, and he's the CEO of a group called Informed Consent Action Network. He's going to be talking about the safety of vaccinations and the uh, the influence the pharmaceutical companies have on all of us and the medical profession in general. So that'll be Wednesday night's program. That's going to be a good one as well. Looking forward to all of those. Be sure to swing by Facebook and give the Beyond Reality Radio Facebook page a like, and also mine at uh, JVJ Paranormal. You can find it. Just give both of those pages a like, and then go to YouTube and find JV Johnson on YouTube and subscribe to that channel. We want you involved in all of our social media so you can keep um, uh, in, informed on what's coming up on the program and uh, what projects we've got in the works. So a lot of great stuff there. As I said, tonight we're talking with John Kachuba. John is a, a paranormal author. He's also uh, an investigator. His website is johnkachuba.com. He's got a book out. It's called Shapeshifters, 
a history. It's one of 12 books he's published. This is the newest one. And shapeshifters is has always been a fascinating topic. And John, you um, kind of got the fever for paranormal when you were young. Um, I think you also, if I if I uh, read some of this information correctly, you also kind of have a bent on on horror a little bit, right? That's something that you enjoy. Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, and I am a member of the Horror Writers Association. Uh, and so, some of my paranormal work, the basic nonfiction work has really inspired me to look more in terms of a fictive um, mode. And so Dark Entry, which I mentioned a little bit earlier, is a novel. It's a paranormal novel, and it, it's based on a place in Connecticut that is called, nicknamed Dark Entry. Uh, and some of your listeners may be familiar with that place. Uh, I did some research up there, actually at the site, um, more for the history of it than anything else, and then discovered some of the legends and ghost stories associated with it. So I took that, I took what I learned from my research in nonfiction, and I blew it up big time. You know, I really added a lot of uh, fiction to it to make it um, an interesting, paranormal, horror, really horror novel. Uh, and so, so I'm looking at that. I'm looking at fiction, and so much of what I've done in terms of nonfiction has given me so much uh, research and so much material that can be fictionalized, you know, very easily. They always make the the point of fiction versus nonfiction. So if it's if it's a nonfiction book that I've written, it's straight nonfiction. I don't invent anything. You know, there's no embellishments. But uh, if I say it's fiction, a novel, then yeah, I always want to say it might be based on places and locations that I've been to, but it has been fictionalized. So yeah, it's it's but it's been a lot of fun doing that. You mentioned um, external and internal shapeshifters. I'm a little confused on the internal idea, just because um, the definition of shapeshifter to me is to actually change shape, to transform physically from one thing to another. But what you're saying here is there's that there can actually be a transformation that's internal that might be a psychological transformation or some other emotional transformation. You wouldn't see a physical change, but yet that's still considered a shapeshifter? Right. And again, um, I'm I'm broadening the definition of shapeshifter, but I but I do feel it is. I feel you may not have shaped uh, shifted your shape physically, but you've certainly done so mentally. And I think if you can go back to ancient times, go back to Scandinavian countries in ancient days, uh, and think of the berserkers. And the berserkers were warriors who took on persona, usually of either a bear or a wolf. They'd go into battle wearing the, the full pelt of a bear. So they have a bear head on their head, and they have the, the pelt as like a cape uh, or a wolf. They would do the same thing for the wolf. They would usually um, use uh, mushrooms to put themselves into a hallucinogenic, you know, kind of trance-like state. But these guys, when they went into battle, they fully believed that they were those animals that they were, you know, whose apparel they were wearing, the, the pelts they were wearing. They believed they were bears. They believed they were wolves. And they were invincible. Uh, when they went into battle, they were in a frenzy. Uh, you know, they were called berserker, a Norwegian or a Scandinavian word from which we get our current berserk. You know, somebody goes crazy, they go berserk. That's where it comes from. It comes from the berserkers. And these guys would go into battle in a frenzy. You could not be anywhere near them. If you were an ally, if you were fighting alongside them, you kept your distance because when they started swinging their swords and axes, it didn't matter what was in front of them. They'd cut anything down. 
it got to the point where it was so bad that after after some various you know Scandinavian rulers were using these uh, warriors as literally as shock troops, it got to the point where um, various royalty members in Scandinavia said, "Hey, we have to outlaw these people," and actually outlawed berserker uh, troops because they were uncontrollable. So. They definitely, you know, from all practical appearances, they were human beings wearing animal pelts. But inside, inside their minds, in their souls, whatever, they were animals. And to me, that's a prime example of an internal shapeshifter. And you see that today. Um, there's still examples, not, not so much warriors, but there are examples of, uh, as I mentioned, shamans. For instance, uh, the Kalahari um, Bushmen in Africa. They're shamans. In fact, I have a couple interviews in my book with, with two of them um, from another book that I took. And they talk about going into a trance state and becoming lions. And they talk about, you know, literally seeing. They're seeing claws appearing in their hand. Uh, they're seeing hair, you know, fur growing on them. They're seeing fangs in their teeth or whatever. Nobody else is seeing that. Mm-hmm. They're seeing it. But to outside observers... They're just who they always were. But they see this and they feel it internally. They feel they have taken on the strength, the cunning, the agility, whatever, of a lion, you know, or whatever animal it is they have, they have decided to shape, uh, shift into, even though it's a shift that nobody sees except them. So it's an interesting phenomenon. And, and a lot of it is rooted in, in psychological disorders as well, too. You know, um, lycanthropy. Was, uh, is a, a rare disease, but it is a mental disorder in which people believe that they are wolves. And they go around on all fours, and they growl at people, and they snap, and they bite, and they claw, uh, and they need to be locked up and treated. They're not wolves, but they believe they are. But to the, out, you know, to the outside observer, I don't see a wolf. I see a person on all fours, but I don't see a wolf. Let's talk about biblical accounts. You mentioned um, you know, the pillar of salt example. Uh, but I think there are probably more throughout the Bible that uh, would qualify as shape-shifting. Yeah, there's quite a few, actually. And what I think is interesting is a theory now that uh, is being sort of bandied about as shape-shifters, saying that Jesus himself was a shape-shifter. There's a, um, there's a theologian from the Netherlands who was examining a Coptic text. It's like 1,300 years old, and it's in the Morgan Library. And as he was interpreting this, um, he was reading that people who were observing Jesus during his time, and this was particularly people who were coming to arrest him, if you think about the the New Testament um, stories about being in the Garden of Gethsemane and Judas and the the, uh, Jewish police come to arrest Jesus, Uh, they say to Judas, well, how do we know this guy? And according to this theologian, the Coptic text reads that they're asking that question because the text reads that he appears different to different people, differently. They say weird, weird things. They say sometimes he's ruddy, R-U-D-D-Y, which is a color. Sometimes he's white. They say sometimes he's old. Sometimes he's young. So this theologian is saying that the text indicates that Jesus appeared differently to different people. Um, that people saw him differently. Uh, perhaps whatever it was they needed to see is what they saw. I mean, we don't know. But this is a, a theory. And if you look at the New Testament further, you have some other stories. You have the story about 
um, after Jesus dies and is resurrected, uh, two of his disciples are walking on the road to a town called Emmaus, and they're talking about him. They're talking about Jesus. And the, the Bible says that all of a sudden, a stranger appears in their midst and walks along with them and has a conversation with them. And it's, it turns out that it's Jesus, but they don't recognize him. Now, they've just spent maybe three years wandering around the Middle East with him 24-7, and yet they don't recognize him. Um, so there's that. And then there's the transfiguration in which, you know, Jesus goes up to a mountaintop to pray, and he tells his disciples, you stay down here and you just watch, and he goes up there and they say, you know, suddenly he's, he's radiant, he's in, you know, he's blinding light, he's, you can't even look at it, it's this radiance, he's become a, some type of sort of light body versus a human body. Then he comes back down later and everything's fine. So we have those instances, and there's, there's more in the Old Testament with... Um, Moses and his rod turning into a serpent. Yeah, I was going to say that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, there's a lot of them, and I was, I was surprised I was when actually, I going through this. Yeah, I was actually thinking the creation of Adam might even be considered of that, or Eve, certainly a rib from Adam, and then uh, Satan yeah. Satan in the Garden of Eden appears as a snake. I mean, there's, it seems like it's basically right. in every uh, verse, if you will. Right. <laughs> But, you know, as I'm thinking about these things, and I was kind of going through pop culture references to shapeshifters, and then I started thinking about ghosts, and I started thinking about television, and I started thinking about movies, and um, we we have a fascination with these topics, don't we? We, we do. <laughs> and I'm not sure why. I, I think with ghosts, I, I've always sort of come to the conclusion that we recognize uh, the fact that we're all mortal, that we're all going to someday die. And many of us wonder about, you know, what comes next. Um, if you have a religious background, you believe in heaven and hell and that kind of thing. If you don't, you still think, well, what happens? Is there an afterlife? So I, so I can see some reason for sort of the interest in ghosts. If, if that is truly the spirit of, you know, a, a person that was passed on, then in some ways it's maybe hope or comforting, maybe, for some people to think, okay, so there is something else that, that happens afterwards. I'm not really sure about the fascination with some of the other creatures, although shapeshifters, as a shapeshifter, I can understand the fascination there, too, because what a shapeshifter offers is it offers us a chance to at least vicariously think, what would it be like if I can throw off all the bonds that hold me uh, together in society, all the moral bonds, all the legal bonds, all the religious bonds. If I can run like a wolf and howl at the moon at night, you know, and yeah. do whatever I want to do, how great would that be? I mean, that appeals to us in some ways. We are still, we're animals, I mean, and we have that, that darker side to our nature that we keep controlled by all those bonds that I mentioned earlier. But a lot of people think, what if I could break free from that? You know, what if I can just do whatever I want? So I can see the attraction to a shapeshifter um, to a figure. And it's not what I said before about sort of just doing, you know, running amok and doing what you want to do. Uh, the other thing is the idea of um, somehow being better than yourself. If you can shapeshift, if you can have some magic power, you can shapeshift into some kind of Marvel Comics, you know, action figure or something like that. A superhero, yeah. Yeah, exactly. How great would that be if, you know, especially if you're some, you know, measly little person that doesn't feel very good about themselves and you can sort of, 
you know, imagine yourself in that place, kind of Walter Mitty-like. Um, so, I, so I think there's a lot of reasons why the shapeshifter character appeals to us, uh, you know, psychologically, why, why it appeals to our nature. I mean, think of Halloween and costumes and masquerades and things like that. Why do we dress up? Why do we put costumes on and pretend to be somebody else? What's that about? You know, we live that out for a little while. Cosplay, yeah. that's a huge industry right sure now. Sure is, yeah. Yeah, for those of you who don't know, cosplay is it's costume play. People dress up like whatever they want to. I mean, it, a lot of times it's superheroes or anime figures, or which I don't really understand the, that that world. But it's a pretty it's pretty popular. It's very popular, in fact. It is, yeah. And I mean, the industry, the cosplay industry, with the conventions that they have, the conferences, all the uh, the costumes, the 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 equipment they sell, the gear they sell, the costumes they sell. I mean, it's a multi billion dollar industry. Worldwide, and it's yeah. So there's something again that appeals to us. Tonight we're talking about shapeshifters. Our guest John Kachuba has a book out called Shapeshifters: A History. John, that was released not too long ago, right? Oh yeah, it's only about uh, four weeks at this point, so it's brand new, right? Brand new, hot off the presses. Off the press, and twenty percent off. Again. Oh, yeah, let's, that's right. <laughs> let's talk about that again. So if uh, if any of our listeners go to your website, which is just your name, johnkachuba.com, and they click right. where now? Uh, there's a tab for books, and all my books are listed there. And if they click on the Shapeshifter book, it'll take them to the distributor's site. And if they put in the code SHAPE20 when they order, S-H-A-P-E 20, the number 20, they'll get 20% off uh, on, on the book. Again, thank you for doing that. Yeah, thank you for doing that for our listeners. Let's talk about skinwalkers. That's something that we've talked about on this program before. And it's obviously there's a shapeshifter connotation, or not necessarily the connotation, but definition here. But there's also something very, very creepy and eerie about skinwalkers. What did, what did you learn as you were researching this? Right. So skinwalkers are, are primarily um, found among the Diné people, the Navajo people, the Southwest. I mean, there's some other Native American uh, nations as well that, that have them, but the Navajo are, are big on that. And the interesting thing is uh, it's very difficult to get them to, to talk about skinwalkers yeah, yeah. because they believe it. I mean, it's part of their culture. And, and what a skinwalker is, is basically, um, we say shaman. Um, they may refer to it as a brujo, uh, Spanish for basically a male witch. Uh, and it's a person who has the ability to shift into it's hard to describe it, it, it into a, a killing machine, I guess I will call it that, because the intent of the skinwalker is entirely evil, 100%. They're usually out to seek vengeance or something on, uh, you know, some, some crime or something done to a family member or something like that. Um, but, but it's all about an evil intention. And so, as I said, um, people who have that belief will not even want to talk about it, uh, simply because they think even by doing that, that they may draw the attention of the skinwalker, and it may, you know, come back to them simply for that reason. And you know that so the skinwalker is one thing, but there's other there's other sort of Native American um, shapeshifter kinds of things. There's the the Wendigo up in the sort of upper Midwest area, um, which is a similar kind of thing. It's uh, basically a killing machine that just preys on human beings, and a lot of that has to do with uh, being a shaman. A shaman or something like along those lines, or sometimes the belief is that it's a curse, similar to like being cursed as a werewolf or something. So it's pretty. Uh, those those characters are 
are in those cultures, indigenous cultures, and they're, they're pretty mysterious and, and frightening to people that hold those beliefs. Some of the other things we've chatted about on this show are things like Sasquatch Bigfoot or Dogmen, um, some of these other cryptid creatures. Have you found any correlation between shape-shifting and some of these topics? I have with some of them, not so much Sasquatch. Um, I, I didn't report on that because my, my personal belief on that is that I just believe it's a, a cryptid of some sort that we just haven't you know, truly discovered that it's somehow flown below our radar for, for many, many years, <laughs> centuries, um, and is now becoming um, more noticeable for whatever reason, and we're studying it more. But I, d- but I don't think it's anything that shifts. I don't believe that it's part human. I think it's uh, some, type, some type of animal that we didn't know about before. Um, Dogman is a little bit different. I did some research on that. In fact, I have a few stories about Dogman in my book um, because the descriptions that I've gotten, the reports that I've read, talk about something that is half human and half canine, sort of like a werewolf, but not quite like a werewolf. Right. Uh, most of the reports talk about having a dog head or a, a canine head uh, and yet being you know, fully upright on two legs and having pretty much the torso and everything else of a man. So it almost sounds like it's something caught almost halfway between human and, and canine. Uh, so, yeah, I do have it in the book because I, I do think that is something that would classify uh, as a shapeshifter. Uh, whether, whether there's more of a shift involved than just when they call it dog man, and even the fact they call it dog man indicates that it's two things, dog man, you know. So I, I wonder if there's more, if, that, if it hasn't been seen in, in a full transformation or if that is as far as it transforms or, you know, we, we don't know. But there's a lot of stories coming out of, like Wisconsin and Michigan and Minnesota and yeah. those areas particularly. I think Missouri too, maybe. But anyway. Yeah, it's it's becoming uh, more and more common in conversation. Um, right. one, of the, one of the things we kind of glanced on here, glanced over, was uh, witchcraft. Now, you know, when, when you look at witchcraft and witches, you talk about uh, witches being able to trans uh, shapeshift into another form. And you also talk about witches casting spells that would uh, shapeshift someone else. Uh, I'm sure you, you ran into a lot of that uh, in your research for your book. I did, and mostly where I, where I run into that is in sort of folk tales and fairy tales for the most part. Um, and I and I know people. I, I know people who are witches and practicing Wicca, and and they're not transforming anybody into any animals. You know, um, so you do find this though in terms of a lot of folk tales and legends. And there certainly was a strong belief uh, centuries ago that that witches, you know, had that power and could do that. And I say centuries ago, but yet there's a story that I have from uh, South Africa that it was. Uh, in 2014, only like five years ago, I think it was Nigeria, if I remember, but there were reports from a newspaper in Nigeria talks about this little town where um, people saw a trio of black birds flying over the village. And they noticed that one of them sort of dropped, and they ran over to where it was. And what they found was, instead of a black bird, they found an old woman. She was 90 years old, mm. and she was dressed in black. And she was laying there on the ground like she was stunned. And when she sort of revived, she was talking to the villagers, and they were saying, you know, who are you? What's going on? What happened? And she said, well, that she was a witch. 
and she said that she was flying back from a meeting of her coven when um, she said she became lost. It, it was daybreak, and she became lost somehow. And at daybreak, she lost her powers, and so she fell to the ground. And, and this is where they found her. Now, they had just seen only a few minutes ago three blackbirds flying over the village, and one sort of seemed to you know, drop down, right. and they find her laying there. So what is that? And she, she declares herself to be a witch, and this was 2014. So we're still getting stories like that, whether, you know, whether they're credible or not is anybody's guess, but they're being reported. I noted here uh, that you've got some a story about, um, and maybe maybe I've got it wrong, but reptilian alien shapeshifters. Right, right. Uh, this is a, this is a this was sort of developed by uh, David Icke, and I think he's been on your show. Yeah, he actually has. Yep. Yeah, and so his theory for people that may not know it is that he believes that millions of years ago, a long time ago, that there were aliens from. He has a whole star system named and everything else. I don't need to go into details, but that there were aliens who came to Earth, and these aliens were reptilian in form, and that they basically mated with sort of the proto-humans that were on our planet at that point. And this bloodline has continued through millennia, um, enabling people to shift, people who have this blood to shift from reptilian form to human form. Uh, And he has a whole massive... uh, concept here of underground communities and, and all this, which I you know, won't go into at this point, but the interesting thing is that uh, he claims that a lot of the reptilian alien shapeshifters have been able to uh, sort of worm their way into society where they have positions of power, and some of them are world leaders. You know, he mentions like Queen Elizabeth, uh, Barack Obama, uh, some famous athletes and, and actors and, and things like that are uh, reptilian aliens. And the, the problem I have with, with that story is that, you know, there's not, I couldn't find a single fact uh, to back <laughs> up anything that's in there. But, you know, um, Ike says that he has something like 20 million people that follow his um, his philosophy or his theory or whatever you want to call it and that you know, buy into that. So, So it's there. People believe it. Um, you know, he uh, he does have a lot of followers, and he talks about the this with a ferocity and a lot of depth in the conversation. It's it's pretty yes. interesting. Yeah, um, you know, you you've done you did a lot of research for the book. Uh, a lot of what we're talking about tonight comes from legend, folklore, and uh, you know, campfire stories in some cases. But how much did you come across that left you scratching your head, thinking, hmm? Maybe this is not a story. Well, I, I think, again, I think some of the reports that I've gotten, I mentioned this 2014 report in Nigeria, which sounds strange, but, but I keep finding these things. There was an article in the New York Times, which is you know, obviously a respected newspaper from 1996, and it talked about um, a series of attacks by wolves in a part of India called Uttar Pradesh. And over a period of about seven months, something like 33 children were, were killed by wolves, carried off by wolves. Oh, and, killed. and when this happened, people became obviously very, you know, you know, very upset, who wouldn't be, and also suspicious, and decided that it could not possibly have been wolves, that it must have been werewolves. 
and this involves, so what happened is people became accused of, of werewolfery, as they called it, and at least 20 people were lynched as possible werewolves. Now, this is 1996. Wow, we're talking yeah. about the Middle Ages here. Yeah. And this is New York Times. The interesting thing is that there's an actual interview with a young girl, 10 years old, who saw her little brother carried off by a wolf right before her very eyes, and she, you know, she couldn't stop it. And this, again, this is in the newspaper article. And what she said was that it wasn't a wolf. She said because this so-called wolf threw the child over, her sh- over his shoulder and ran off on two legs upright. And there was a report from another, uh, an older male in that same village who said something like, well, the authorities want us to say that they're wolves, but we know better. We've seen them. They're running on two legs. They're not wolves. They're werewolves. So... Yeah, I don't know what to do with stories yeah, like that. Yeah. I mean, those are the kind of stories that make me scratch my head. Like, what? What is that? And I have I have numerous reports like that in the book. I mean, I can't go through them all. But but recent reports, not something like I say, you know, Middle Ages accounts or something ancient accounts. These are new. These are twentieth century, twenty first century accounts. We only have a couple minutes left. But what about photographic evidence? Anybody present anything to you that uh, you looked at and thought, hey, this this might be the real deal? Yeah, it's an interesting thing, because I did not come across real photographic evidence. We talked about the reptilian alien shapeshifters, and I think people can go on the Internet and just plug that in, reptilian alien shapeshifter image, and you'll see these close-ups of people's, uh, the pupil of their eyes changing from uh, you know, a round pupil like we have to like a vertical slit, more like a reptile. and You'll see it happen before your eyes. You know? So I've seen that. Uh, but in terms of, of photographic evidence, I really haven't come across any which is uh, sort of interesting to think about that. Um, why isn't there any of that? Yeah. But no, I, I, have not, I have not found it. So uh, the, the book is available, Shapeshifters of History. What's uh, next on your uh, hit list here? Because uh, you obviously keep working. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, yes I do. Well, currently, actually, right now, my agent is uh, trying to sell a trilogy. It's a historical novel trilogy, but it's based on the paranormal. Again, as I said, I'm sort of moving in that direction of taking actual paranormal uh, metaphysical events or, or stories and fictionalizing them. So um, we're waiting to hear right now from a couple publishers. So if that goes through, I'll be busy working on those and you know, doing edits and things on, on those three. But other than that, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I still like this shapeshifter um, research, and, and I think, as I said before, I may just have scratched the surface on it, so I might delve into that a little deeper, too. And, of course, you do speak and make appearances. Right. Actually, I'm going to be talking about shapeshifters in September at a conference in the Republic of Georgia, which I don't think a lot of your oh, wow. listeners will attend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll be there. Um, but yeah, but, I, but actually on my website, too, there's a schedule of appearances. <laughs> uh, I'll be talking about shapeshifters at universities and libraries, um, both here, some in Canada. Um, so, yeah, I'll be... You know, I'll be around. I'll have to look and see how many listeners we have in Georgia, the nation, not the state. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Well, you know what, John, it's been a great conversation. Very, very interesting. Thanks so much for spending the night with us here tonight. Oh, thank you, JV. I appreciate the time, and uh, it's been fun. Thanks. Don't forget, if you go to John Kachuba, spelled K-A-C-H-U-B-A, johnkachuba.com, and click on the Books tab there and go through to uh, purchase the book Shapeshifters a History, you can enter a promo code that uh, John graciously set up for listeners of this program. It's Shape 
SHAPE20 is the promo code. You'll save 20% on the book. So anyway, thank you to John for being on the show tonight. Very interesting conversation. Don't forget tomorrow night. We're, we're st- uh, oh, Ryan, we're still working on, uh, we're still working on guests for tomorrow night. Oh, did we figure that out yet? Feverishly working. Yeah. Uh, many emails have been sent. Um, and uh, it's anybody's guess well, it's going to be on tomorrow it's, night. It's going to be a potluck guess. Uh, yeah, well, that's what happens when we get. We had changes, something lined right? up, and yeah. it fell through at the last minute. It so happens. It's it happens. live. It's going to it's going to be interesting regardless, and we'll have a good time go with it. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, best of programs for Thursday night and Friday night. Some great interviews from the archive, and that'll also be the case for Monday night's program. And I'm excited about next week. We get to talk about JFK Jr.'s mysterious. Death. Well, some people think it's mysterious. Some think it was just a pilot error plane crash. Our guest uh, definitely thinks it's nefarious. Yeah. And then uh, Wednesday night, the long-anticipated interview and discussion with Dell Bigtree. And we'll be talking about vaccinations and the pharmaceutical companies. Again, all very controversial. Mm-hmm, for so, sure. Great week next week of programs. Looking forward to having you along. In the meantime, swing by YouTube and give our channel a subscribe there. Just look for J.V. Johnson and you'll find it. And then um, go to Facebook and also look for J.V. Johnson and Beyond Reality Radio. Like those two pages. It'll keep you in the uh, in the know as to what we've got going on on the show. So that's going to do it for tonight. Thanks for being along with us. We appreciate it. And we'll see you tomorrow. It's Beyond Reality Radio. Beyond Reality Radio is hosted by Jason Hawes and J.V. Johnson and produced by Alexandria Johnson and Slick Eddie Edwards for Intercom Radio. Beyond Reality Radio is distributed by Westwood One Radio Networks. Stop by our Facebook page and say hello. Follow the hosts on Facebook as well. For Jason Hawes, follow at JasonHawes.Taps. For J.V. Johnson, follow at JVJParanormal. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Radio or you have a suggestion for a guest, contact Slick Eddie Edwards at SlickEddieEdwards at gmail.com. Be sure to visit our chat room as well at beyondrealityradio.com. Thanks for listening.